The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. This is Max George. I'm Nathaniel Darkish. Until we got our hands on those podcasts, we had no idea what we were dealing with. No idea. (laughs) I feel like I always have to make a noise. (laughs) You always do, and I've started cutting some of them out. No, they're lovely. (laughs) It's probably going to be the happiest part of this entire episode. (laughs) Yeah, this one's going to get a little dark. (laughs) Okay, so we are talking the Poughkeepsie Tapes, which is a 2007 film that didn't actually get released in any, like, meaningful way until, like, 2013, I think. Today, police made a shocking discovery in Poughkeepsie. A third body was found here today. A Poughkeepsie couple vanished over the weekend, seemingly without a trace. Do you mind if I film this? I'm making a little movie about my trip. Yeah, this flew under the radar. It's crazy. (laughs) Well, I mean, it, it got shelved for a long time. The first release of it wasn't theatrical or anything it was vod like like well let's see six years after it wasn't a like video physical release you know of, of dvd or or blu-ray that you could buy until 10 years after it came out yeah and uh, there are a lot of kind of rumors that i read online about why that was for those of us for those of you who listen to our podcast this movie in particular i think is one of the more grittier uh, movies that we've probably reviewed. It's a snuff kind of film footage. I guess the basic plot here is there's a local police department in Poughkeepsie that discovers these tapes, uh, these VHS tapes, and there is what, like 60 of them, Nathaniel? No, there's like 800 of them. Oh, wow, I'm grievously wrong. Well, I need to add that to things that did not work with the movie. But they go through these tapes and they start to unravel this crazy legacy of this wackadoo serial killer in the community who they've been trying to track for years. And it's his kind of video journal of all of these crimes he's committed. And wowza. Let me make a, a one or a couple little tweaks to what you said. So one, they really haven't been tracking him. the 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 big idea is is more that this serial killer has totally flown under their radar for many years. He's been killing people, but he has been doing it in a huge variety of different ways. You know, he's very much playing off of how uh, the police track down serial killers, and is yeah mixing up his methods of killing, mixing up his victims, mixing up everything. So that way they aren't connecting all of these killings and are instead just, you know, kind of associating them as as just random killings. Or, you know, sometimes he even went as far as to string a few things together and, and specifically like make it look like it was a cop. 
Like he's doing all kinds of stuff. So it's a, a big variety of, of the kinds of things that he's doing. And so, yeah, all of these tapes are tapes of, yeah, the different killings, but also like torture sessions. There, There's a huge variety of, of things that, that are on on these and you know how the movie is structured you know you're only seeing you know a small fraction of them uh, kind of in between these very dateline kind of show sort of format between it you know with with interviews with police officers and with different you know people who are involved in finding it and, and investigating it you know and kind of just going through what they know about the killings uh, yeah and now that you say that out loud that's very much the case with this movie and i i think we could talk about this a little bit further on in the show but the dateline aspect of it i think contributed to me misunderstanding the show it's i, I don't know if it's the perfect way to present it and anyway we can get to that when we get to it but overall this movie is pretty dark well i mean you use the you use the term snuff film and, and you know it, this isn't an actual snuff film but it's like a, a true su- pseudo snuff film where it, it plays with that very much like home footage, it looks like a real person doing real crimes, real unspeakable things to people. They made it look as authentic as possible, and it's kind of hard to watch. Yeah, and that that worked really well, and we'll get to that. The, the home footage is not great quality, but at the same time, creators behind all of this, I think, took a lot of time in making it look as authentic as some gritty amateur home video footage would actually look like. Yeah. And so like you say, it is difficult to watch, not only because it's some dark and intense scene, but because the quality of the tapes is not great. And it adds to the show, but also kind of hurts it in some regards. But again, this show, the serial killer is very depraved, very violent, and very kind of foot on the gas pedal there's no slowing down really once he gets started i guess should we kind of talk about some of the stuff that worked for us and i i think you kind of some more of the major uh plot elements will kind of come through just us discussing what we like what we don't like yeah absolutely for me i think the intensity of the entire show was what i really enjoyed the most there was a lot of cheese that we can kind of get to later especially with the police department um but a lot of the scenes with cheryl who was kind of the main victim of this serial killer's crusade her acting and her plot really was captivating in the most tragic way and then just kind of the serial killer's mo he's this very angry individual and he very much likes to control his victims. There were a ton of very torture-esque scenes that you see where he's yelling at them and grading them, torturing them, slowly killing them, essentially. And you see that. And the, the intensity and the rawness of all of that, when you're just watching it on a TV, it, it really becomes unsettling as the movie goes on. For sure. So, yeah, you mentioned Cheryl. So... I guess, you know, kind of filling in that plot element. So Cheryl is a character who, yeah, so basically she was kidnapped by him and was held as his prisoner for years, you know, like, I don't know, like 15 years or something crazy like that. During all of that time, he, you know, degraded her. He 
you know, basically slowly brainwashed her. And so there are, are times where she eventually starts, like, assisting with some of the torture, or at least was, you know, like, present while he was torturing people. And then, yeah, ultimately, she actually gets free. So, you know, this is a, a spoiler for late in the movie, but by the end of it, basically, the, the police get, like, this anonymous tip about this house. They go to this house, uh, and they find her just, like, hiding in the house. And then they... And, and she's alive and, and, you know, has survived all this, this horrible torture. And then they, and that's at this point that they find all the tapes. And so, they, like, they weren't aware of this serial killer until they find her and all of the evidence uh, that he himself has made. She had a bigger part to play in all of this as well. Because to me, watching this movie, the serial killer really was looking for the right person, I think, to brainwash and kind of turn into his slave. Um, and everyone just was not cutting it until he found Cheryl. But uh, tragically, once he did find Cheryl, his motives, of course, didn't stop there. He continued to kill. But I think she was, in some regard, the prize. And that dynamic was really fascinating. I, I haven't seen that, I think, the way they portrayed it in a movie before. Yeah, there's a certain level of, of like, truly horrific realism to that. Yeah, that that is really rare to see, you know, you, you get little like snippets of that kind of idea in other things, specifically Hannibal, especially, you know, the, the book Hannibal and the film Hannibal, you know, it plays a little bit of that with, with Hannibal and Clarice and him trying to kind of make her his, like, like trying to like dominate her and, and get her into his world. That kind of idea persists there or, or you know, in, in a lot of fiction, but yeah, it's usually to a much smaller degree. And with this, it just, like, they really kind of let you soak up how awful it is. And also, like, kind of I, how how I interpret his intentions with Cheryl is that it really wasn't about having a slave or, or you know, having someone to do his bidding or whatever. You know, that's, that's kind of what it looks like on the surface. But I think really what it boils down to is that he wanted to create a scenario in which when he chose to reveal himself her having been kidnapped her still being alive as a as a like physical testament to how awful he is was really his motivation you know he wanted to horrify the public with what he'd done when he decided to reveal it all and so that's you know kind of what he he successfully does you know in in the fiction of this film is that you know he leaves her alive and then calls the police so they can come find her and find out about all the awful things he's done and then she's the the like living testimony of the monster that he is. And I would agree with you to a certain point, because I think it started out as a very sexual kind of domination type of an experience. And then when he slowly started to master his craft even more, uh, I do agree that it kind of evolved into that as kind of a, a stamp, a final stamp of hey, this is what I'm capable of, and y'all still haven't found me. Um, so I think they're interconnected in some regard. But tell me more about why you thought the ending of this film was so horrifying for you. You told me when I was watching it that there was a scene that just like utterly rotted you to the core. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Okay, so you know, again, this is going yet yeah, to the very end. Uh, but so 
for a lot of the film, you don't know that Cheryl is actually alive, that she survived this whole experience. So it's not until, you know, the very last act of the film that they, the filmmakers reveal that. And so then they have an interview with her. And so what is, and, and it's really performed very effectively. Like the actress really knocks out of the park in this scene. But basically, you know, they have the, the filmmakers asking questions to her about, you know, all the awful things she endured. And she kind of is, like, just not really responsive, not really responsive, until, like, finally, it's just her and them. And, you know, and she's making sure that, you know, her family members are, aren't are around to hear this thing. And she's like, you know, do you want to really know how I feel about this? And they're like, well, yeah. And she said, he loves me. He's going to come back for me. This this is all just temporary. Like, he loves me, and, and that's why he did everything, and... I love him, and and then it's it's at that moment that you see her like scratch her arm, and then you see that uh, she is missing most of one of her arms, like that 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 was part of the torture, and this is the first time you see that revealed, and so you know she is literally like scratching at something that that was a horrific wound, and 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 she's just totally professing her love for him, and saying that everything he did it was because he loved her, and that's horrifying because you know this is after you have seen scenes of her you know weeping as as other people are being tortured uh you you know scenes of her being tortured and 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 being forced to say things like you know i'm happy that you killed my family over and over again you know you've seen her be brainwashed and coerced into totally being you know reduced to rubble and then you see that long-term effect that even after he has cut off her own her freaking arm this is is what she's been reduced to so for me that was just like the biggest gut punch because again that's that's like the most raw real element uh, of the film it was just like that is something that you know is is the real life horror that that some people have to endure and they don't recognize it as horrific yeah, I think that scene came towards the end of the film, and it really was kind of the the tragic culmination of everything that this serial killer did. And it mirrors what you just said, that he left his mark not only on society, but on someone who's still alive. They they will never get out of that torture, and that's that's horrifying. Yeah, and then it you know kind of follows it up with, like, she killed herself, like, two weeks later... And then after that, he steals her body. Yeah, that's how the movie opens. Is It's this kind of cryptic scene where you see a grave that's been unburied and a car is yanking out the, the coffin. And you have no idea really what's going on. There's some mention of a girl that's gone missing, but you don't really piece it together that it's Cheryl until that end. And, and it basically, you know, it says like, yeah, that tape was sent into us afterward. So for me, I think really there were two harrowing scenes. And the first one I want to talk about is kind of tangential to to the whole movie. There was a lot of footage that didn't really have much to do with the kind of actual plot of Cheryl and the serial killer and the police department. There was a lot of kind of gore porn, if we can use that term, uh, which is fine. It, It served its purpose in this movie very well, I think. But there was one scene in particular, the serial killer liked to wear different types of masks. 
And in one of these films that the police department was watching was this poor innocent girl tied up. Uh, her mouth was taped and she was clearly in a panic. And out of the darkness in the back, you see the serial killer crawling on all fours, but like, like reversed. Down. Yeah, kind of like Reagan does in The Exorcist. But it's very, very slow. And he's wearing just this this creepy plain white face mask there's no features to it or anything and he's in almost like a tight black suit and so it looks yeah. like this inhuman spider thing crawling in the back yeah and it's like this commedia dell'arte mask with like a long nose and all of that it's it's very creepy <laughs> the footage is very amateurish it's not high quality it's grainy, the picture's kind of coming in and out, and so you see him slowly creeping into the camera frame. He slides up her body, looking at her in his face, and then he has, I can't remember if it's this scene or another, where he has like syringe needles taped to his fingers that he's slowly bringing closer and closer to this poor innocent girl's face. And I could not blink in this moment, Nathaniel. It was horrifying. I haven't felt that scared in a movie since probably Hereditary. Yeah, it that was definitely a harrowing scene. But even oh, more, even more than that is towards the beginning of the movie where we see some of his first um, videos, there's a scene where he's driving in a car and he sees a little girl out in the front yard. And this is and his first kill, to clarify. And he has the video camera in his hand, takes it out of the car, and you're seeing all of this. And of course you know it's fiction, but the quality and the acting and, and just everything makes you really question it. And you think you're watching uh, a serial killer approach a little girl in the front yard of her house, talking to her so innocently... He asks her if she would like to see the other end of the camera. She's clearly in a lot of distress, but he almost forces her to take the camera, and then you hear her just punch her in the head. And and even talking about it right now, it was just so authentic and so real. It it makes you almost nauseated because you know shit like this is happening out there. And the way that they created this film just really breaks your heart oh it was horrifying horrifying yeah and and i think part of what made those kinds of scares very effective is that it it didn't feel like a movie in terms of like the levels of gore or things like that like they just you know there's just the thud and then suddenly you know him running off and then you know just like you know has a card that just says like oh yeah like that body was found last episode in our annabelle schmamabelle <laughs> we talked about killing this infant in that movie and how that would have made the scares better and it was almost trivial because it was such a a paranormal type of a movie that we could almost talk about it like it never actually really would happen. But then you flip that with a movie like this, where they do such a great job at keeping it authentic, that I feel almost bad bringing it up again. Like, we're bringing that energy into the to the air. So yeah, it, it's wild. It's not for the faint of heart. 
Uh, it's a it's a very gritty and very raw show. And I, I want to talk about what you just mentioned is that a lot of the scenes in this movie and why I think it was so powerful is is what you said. It was simple. Um, scenes were very gory and very kind of torture porn, but at the same time, they weren't over the top. Blood wasn't spouting out of anyone's arteries. Faces weren't being peeled off. Um, it was simple. The scenes were terrifying. There wasn't any wild special effects, though, going on or animatronics or anything like that. Um, the simplicity behind it made it real. It gave it a level of authenticity that scared me on a very visceral level. And I, I think horror movies need to tap into that. You know, we, we see a lot of shows out there, and Annabelle's a great example, where they try and go so over the top that it loses that scare factor. Um, and shows like because this, it, or... Go ahead. Oh, just because it, it yeah, becomes removed from reality. It, it doesn't feel like it is something that could happen anymore. Yeah, and even the It remakes, like... Pennywise as a monster is very scary, but it becomes so fantastical that you just don't really associate it with anything that happens in real life. And it's a spectacle to it. You know, going back to our, our fan base of Hereditary, <laughs> you know, the demon being portrayed as a glimmer of light, that was powerful. We weren't expecting that. And, and similar in this movie, the simplicity scares you it makes you feel like this could happen to you it makes you feel like your upstairs neighbor or co-worker could be in this type of a situation it's wild because it, it, they could that's that's the horrifying thing i'm listening to a podcast right now about jeffrey dahmer and it, it's talking about how he had friends growing up and he was kind of a class clown and you know everyone knows that individual that Jeffrey Dahmer once was, little did they know he ended up killing 17 young boys. Like, that's real life, and that's why I think this movie is so intense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, and I, I'm just going to put in a, a little plug for a, a thing that is probably worth your time if Dahmer is interesting to you. Uh, it is the graphic novel, well, I guess... Uh, it's hard because it's not actually a novel, because it's not fiction. The nonfiction graphic novel, uh, My Friend Dahmer, which is written by a, a comic artist who, he went to high school with Dahmer. And so, like, like they weren't, like, close friends, but they were, you know, like, casual buddies at school. And so it's kind of dealing with that, like, weirdness of, of knowing this person who becomes this monster so that, that's a really powerful piece and it was adapted into a movie i haven't seen the film version but the but the yeah the graphic novel version really uh was powerful it was uh, really interesting to see that unique perspective one thing that i think is really something that that really i i enjoyed just kind of from the you know looking at this as as a meta piece is you know it's in in the fiction of this world this serial killer is still at large and so they say in the film like near the end that once this goes to theaters i bet he's going to be in the theater over and over and over again and he's going to watch it a million times because like this is what he wants he wants people to know what he's done he's going to sit there and he's going to watch people's reactions and i think that was such a clever idea that it's it makes it kind of a a real shame that this movie didn't actually go to theaters because 
I'm sure when that line dropped in a theater, it would have gotten such great reactions from people because, like, your instinct immediately is to look over your shoulder. Like, even though you know it's all fiction, it's not real, it, at that moment, like, it would break that, you know, kind of barrier between fiction and reality even more and make you feel like the serial killer is in the room with me. And I think that was brilliant. Well, and that layered on top of all of the shootings that have happened in theaters in the last decade or so would even make it scarier, unfortunately, that we have people in the world that do that. But it's a very good mm. point. Okay, should we move into maybe a few things that we didn't think were so great about the show? Because it's not perfect. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> Do you want to kick us off? Sure. The first thing I kind of wanted to mention, probably the biggest issue I had with the movie was the police department. They seemed kind of dysfunctional and incompetent in everything they did. And that kind of was on top of this serial killer almost being invincible. 800 tapes, that's a little much, I think. And, and I mean, to, and, and to, to be fair, to, to clarify, it doesn't say that it's like 800 victims. But rather that, right? Like, yeah, and and they said that like I don't know, six hundred of them are just like him, like filming Cheryl and doing you know her doing stuff. So still, I just I think it's yeah, it's kind of excessive. It seems a little hyperbolic. But with all of his changing mo's and the setup of this other poor guy who was incarcerated when the police department thought he was the serial killer, and just how he is still at large, and the whole Cheryl thing. It, at the end of the movie, I kind of felt like they made the serial killer out to be something almost inhuman. I mean, even the craziest of serial killers, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, they all made human mistakes, which eventually would catch up to them. And I, I guess I just I wanted that humanity a little bit, even if they didn't catch him, that maybe they were on the trail for a little bit. I don't know. I just felt like it was too perfect of a serial killer, yeah. if that makes sense. And I, I know you had some issues with the police department as well. So please let me know. Yeah. So I, I definitely agree that the those characters just didn't feel as real. Like it wasn't even necessarily like their incompetence that bothered me. Because, I mean, honestly, like a, a lot of it really does boil down to that that he is, you know, mixing up his M.O.s and his victims and all of that. And so, like, in real life, yeah, that would make it extremely hard to track this killer. The The acting and stuff didn't feel quite as realistic. You know, they were kind of going for the Dateline kind of thing where, you know, it's like people who don't know how to talk into a camera sometimes. But yeah. they, they almost went a little bit too far with that. And also just like the the fact that it's all shot like it is, you know, that an episode of that kind of, you know, true crime show with these interviews and all of that, it made it so it kind of lost a little bit of that intensity for me because, you know, it feels safe to watch that kind of thing where you watch these things. It's like, oh, and the severed head was found in the whatever. You know, we, yeah, we found the severed head in the river. And you're like, okay, okay, I'm used to hearing that kind of thing on Dateline. It doesn't, like, affect me the same way because it had that format. Yeah, I just, like, didn't feel that same emotional level of intensity. If they had just been like, here's this found footage thing, buckle up. Then I just would have been like, oh, well crap i think that added a little bit of the incompetence factor to me because it was so dateline-esque that you had these you know donut loving policemen and they were trying to find this crazy serial killer and they just can't find him it almost felt cartoonish 
in some aspects to me, that they just kind of were bumbling through this case. Even, I don't know, it, it was frustrating yeah. to watch at times, because it it altered the pace and the feel of the show. You know, we've talked about a lot of these horrific scenes that really terrified me, and then we would have 20 minutes of the bumbling police department, and it just, the pacing felt so intense and so visceral, and then it just, like, slammed on the brake. And that was tough. And the blunders that the cops made also kind of felt contrived. Not in the sense that they were trying to blame someone for these murders for the sake of the media, but contrived in a way that they were trying to hold the audience's attention to the show. Uh, kind of like a false sense of security. And then plot twist, it wasn't this person. Like, I don't know. It felt cheap. It felt really cheap. Yeah, yeah. It definitely felt like it had some of the the beats of like okay and now there'll be a commercial break and that kind of thing which didn't actually fit what they said it was going to be that it was going to be in theaters and all that kind of stuff it just there was a sort of like a tonal disconnect i guess you could say but you make a great point i think there that it felt almost like a commercial it could have been done better i think the the police department cheapened the authenticity and it almost made it feel like they weren't taking this seriously they've seen this footage this needs to be a bigger deal (laughs) yeah and also like i think it's sometimes spent too much time having certain people just be like shocked by the footage you know just like cutting someone's like i had to you know review all the stuff and uh, my wife accidentally like watched part of it once and she didn't like talk to me for like six months yeah like that that had no purpose yeah just like things like that it just it to me that was a little bit too much you're just like yeah i'm like the only person who's seen some of those ones you're like i don't know i'm pretty sure with a case this intense there would be many experts going through all of this intensely not just like one guy watching it all well and to kind of piggyback off of that because of all of those slower moments they I felt like the scary scenes, there weren't enough of them. The ones they had were horrifying. Don't get me wrong. But it it didn't feel like there were very many of those. There were a lot of tense, gritty, creepy moments. But I wanted more of those child murder scenes. I wanted more of the creepy black crawl scenes and more of the cheryl torture scenes Ugh, this makes me sound like a horrible person i'm glad yeah, we're you're speaking a monster to f- i'm glad we're speaking to friends <laughs> um but <laughs> i wanted more of that i think it could have pushed it a little bit more i don't even necessarily need more of those things but just i i just wanted yeah a little bit more time in the tapes and a little less time with the cops that's what I'm trying to say. Because, you know, the the whole point is these tapes. I mean, it's called the Poughkeepsie tapes. I just wanted to get a little bit more of... Like, when he when he calls it in, like, you almost expect him to have, you know, a tape where he just is, like, directly taunting the cops or something like that. But that never happens. And, and that kind of thing, I think, would have been interesting. Another thing just didn't quite work for me as well was just... It talks about how the tapes with Cheryl is, like, 600 of the 800 tapes or something you know, crazy like that. But as far as her actual, like, amount of time in the movie, it took forever to get to her. Forever. Yeah. I mean, like, two-thirds of the movie didn't even have her in it, really. Yeah, and so, like, once it did get to her, like, it was, like, it paid off in a a really powerful way, but 
they they just kept talking about her and talking about her and talking about her and then you finally see when he abducts her i think it just would have been better if it maybe had that you know in the first third of the movie instead of the last third of the movie because by that point you're just kind of like yeah we get it like yeah he's doing bad stuff but like that was like where it started to actually like take shape in, in terms of being more of a story as opposed to just a random smattering of awful crimes. So just like from a storytelling perspective, I think it would have been better to front load that or, or a lot more. It just would have, I think, kept my interest in it even better. Also, just like, you know, the fact that he does dig up Cheryl's body and send in the tape and stuff like that, like... It just didn't ever quite, like, gel as to why he did that exactly. Spent a lot of time building up to that for it to just kind of be like, I don't quite get what his intent was there. Also, I really didn't like that it, that they had a post credit scene of just, yeah. you know, another snippet of a tape. It just, it felt like something that wouldn't happen. It's all shot in this very realistic, like, hey, this is grounded in reality. We're acting like this is a real thing. And... Having a post-credit scene to me says quite the opposite. Yeah, it it does exactly what you just said. Like we're meant to believe that this has actually happened, but there's a post-credit scene. I don't know. I think post-credit scenes are are a fad right now. You know. Yeah, and and like I'm okay with them in certain formats. Like you know, in a Marvel movie, whatever. But when we're having it like. This is the, you know, just like cutting to another torture thing. It just feels like the the filmmakers are making this like cheap grab based on like someone actually getting tortured. Like that'd be awful. Like, yeah, yeah. Just like instantly like kills the credibility of this being what it claims to be. As a whole, I feel like it is a an effective film. And and I don't think we mentioned this yet, but it, it was made by John Eric and Drew Dowdle, uh, who are the brothers who are responsible for uh, one of your very favorite movies, As Above, So Below. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to say about it? Or should we give it our ratings, Nathaniel? It's not a film for everybody. No. Um, it's definitely a, a... It's not your typical horror movie. Very grounded in that, like, very authentic experience if you're listening to this episode of having not seen it definitely you know kind of look at what interests you in horror and make a decision based on that because it is yeah not not for everybody for sure and i think sometimes on our show we talk a lot about gateway horror movies uh conjurings annabelle's a lot of that this is not one of those this is the far end of the other side of the spectrum. Uh, I think this is for more of those veteran horror fans out there who are want a movie to push them to their limits to get them to be scared. Don't go rent this movie with your girlfriend slash boyfriend and be like, hey, let's snuggle up and watch this movie together because we want to be scared. Because you'll both end up wetting the couch and it will just be a disaster. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, ratings. Um, I gave it a six for crowns. Uh, it's a very solid show, not perfect, as we've mentioned. And I think a lot of the things that make it not great really hurt it, really cheapen the authenticity. So I gave it a six. And then I also gave it a six for scares. The scares, when they come, hit you like a ton of bricks. 
We just need more of them. So uh, similarly, I gave it a six for Crowns because, you know, I, I think it is an extremely well-crafted film. But yeah, there are just some storytelling elements and, and yeah, things that just didn't quite work out as we talked about. And then, yeah, for Screams, I decided to give it a seven just because... Yeah, when it does get under, or yeah, when it did get under my skin, it did a really good job of that. But again, there just wasn't, there was just too many long sections with police. All of that said, should we uh, move into our uh, new segment called Sinister Psych? Um, yeah, we thought this would be a great episode to kind of talk a little bit more about some stuff that we have talked about in other episodes but haven't really devoted a lot of time and i think it's going to be really fun to dive into some of the stuff behind the scenes that probably inspired some of these movies for sure and so yeah so today we're going to talk about a few different elements that deal with the psychology of the film and and the things that happen in it and and again like a lot of this will be psychology stuff that that you see pop up in other movies but this movie you know really try to lean into the realism of this first thing i'm going to talk about is stockholm syndrome it was really interesting doing some research on stockholm syndrome because you know you can kind of look at at cheryl dempsey as this character that is sort of the epitome of this idea of stockholm syndrome but i'm not actually 100 certain if she fits under that umbrella quite as neatly as i maybe first thought before i started doing research so well, and i'm sure you'll talk about it but i think there hasn't been a ton of actual scientific like research done on Stockholm syndrome. It's more a theory than it is an actual kind of syndrome because it's just so difficult to study. Yes. Yes. So yeah, I guess I'll, I'll kind of define Stockholm syndrome and then I'll talk about yeah, some of the effects of it. And then yeah, some of the kind of controversy around it. So yeah, for, for starters, and, and, you know, a lot of this is just straight from Wikipedia, so I might be uh, summarizing some of the things from there. So credit to the, the writers and editors at Wikipedia. But so, yeah, victims of Stockholm Syndrome develop positive feelings toward their captors and sympathy for their causes and goals and negative feelings towards the police or authorities. So this is typically, you know, even going on after they return to their normal lives. And, and so... You know, it's it's most famously, you know, from an instance in Stockholm where I believe it was a bank robbery and, you know, a lot of the hostages in that situation ended up feeling very positively towards their, the people who held them captive for great, uh, long periods of time. So, yeah, some of the physical and uh, psychological effects is that um, it causes confusion, blurred memory, victims to... Uh, refuse to accept reality of events. It often has recurring flashbacks. There's often a lack of feeling, fear, helplessness, hopelessness, aggression, depression, guilt, a feeling of dependence on their captor, and uh, PTSD. Uh, there is anxiety, irritability, cautiousness, and estrangement. Typically, they feel estranged from their normal life and feel dependent and and. Uh, on on their captor and and like a, a feeling of anxiety because they're not with them and also some of the other effects is that it can cause uh, increased effects of pre-existing conditions especially things like heart conditions if if you already had like mental illnesses such as uh, anxiety and depression it tends to intensify those 
uh, and also, you know, because it affects the way that you sleep and the way that you eat and things like that, there's often health effects related to that as well. A research group found that uh, even though there's a lot of like media coverage of, of the idea of Stockholm Syndrome, you know, it's, it's a popular thing to talk about on the news, especially whenever there's, you know, something like a hostage situation. There is very little research into it, as you mentioned. And, and a lot of that research uh, ends up being kind of contradictory. A lot of the things don't really line up with each other very nicely. Some researchers, you know, really just kind of want to apply this idea more to just, you know, all definitions of abuse and, and um, coercive, or coercive control and things like that. And so, yeah, there's not really a clear definition of Stockholm Syndrome, nor is there a, a real clear way yeah, to, to define it. So, so really, you know, when people are victims of this, it really kind of, yeah, more feeds into this idea of abusive power and control. Well, and to, to kind of add some context here, I, I work as a project manager for a research company. Um, so I, on a daily basis, am working with IRBs, which is essentially the governing entity of any sort of research program that occurs. And something like Stockholm Syndrome is incredibly difficult to get IRB approval for because whenever you involve some sort of risk group or risk minority, the levels of protection that the federal government put on those groups for their protection, of course, drastically is increased. Um, and so how are you going to do an authentic research study on an individual who's been abused? Um, it's just not heard of, and it's very difficult to get government approval to do this type of research. So a lot of this, like we've talked about, is very theoretical and kind of piecemealed from bits and pieces of research that's been done. Because you're working with individuals who have been damaged, and you have to be so sensitive when it comes to that. Yeah, and, and, and how are you going to do things like a double-blind study? Exactly. Barring, you know, actually doing horrible things to people. You know, kind of as I mentioned, really all of this really feeds more into the idea of abusive power and control, which is, you know, kind of in and of itself uh, a, a much more uh, researched phenomenon uh, because simply we have more instances of, of people who have gone through it. And so... Basically, what happens in, in a situation with uh, coercive control like this is that the things that make the victim of it vulnerable are expo uh, exploited by the person who is abusing them. So the more vulnerable you are, the more likely you are to be a victim in, the, in these kind of situations. And so what happens is that there's a, a thing called traumatic bonding that happens. So... Basically, the abuser will have a cycle of abuse and then occasionally like f have cycles of, of being rewarded. And so it, it creates a powerful bond because they are basically often controlling, breaking you down and then building you back up. This this can make it so people who are victims of it, you know, view this uh, kind of abuse as normal, legitimate rational and feel like you know when it, when they are abused it's their fault so you know it's 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 you know fully plugged into ideas of, of isolation gaslighting mind games there's a lot of ways that you can look at it a lot of times you know things like drugs or alcohol or sleep deprivation are incorporated into the way that the person is controlling them and so it's really horrifying and you know these are 
things that are unfortunately fairly common. You know, really coercive control is is a tactic of of many uh, abusive people. So you know, kind of yeah, what we're looking at is is the tactics really boil down to this cycle of of violence. Uh, you know, they'll they'll do things like threaten, get cause them harm. Often the abuser will threaten to commit suicide. They will, you know, force the person that they're coercing to do things like uh, illegal actions because then they can say, oh, like, if you don't do what I say, then I'll call the cops on you for the bad thing that you did. Yeah, there, there's all of these these cycles. And, and then they follow that uh, economic abuse. You know, they, they often take away any economic uh, independence of the uh, person that they're abusing. They will yeah, isolate them you know, basically be the only person that they're interacting with when, yeah, whenever anything goes wrong, even, you know, like say they're hurting someone, if there's blood that gets on someone, then they'll get mad at them for getting blood on, on the carpet, even though, you know, just, yeah, slowly breaking them down. And then, then occasionally just, you know, having just tons of love and care and, and like, Oh, like I, I'm, you know, so glad to have you. And so, you know, they, they feel like, uh, in order to be validated, you know, a victim of this will feel like they need their abuser in their life because otherwise they're not having those, you know, constant or those not well, not constant, but the regular affirmations that come in the middle of the cycle of, of abuse. When you think about it kind of on a neurological sense, you you get broken down to the point where your body is probably not secreting any sort of dopamine. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that helps us attach to things. It makes us feel good. And then they flip that on its head and they provide you with a lot of love and care, even though it's in their twisted kind of scenario, that you then have this surge of dopamine, which causes you to to bond and to create these kind of weird relationships with your captor. It, it's very complicated and it it has roots in science and it it's horrible that it can happen to people because it it's tragic yeah it it's truly horrifying and and yeah again like this is something that unfortunately you know it, i guess if you see this happening in your own life or in the lives of people that you care about there are you know definitely things uh, in place you know ways to to report that kind of thing to, to help people get help i'll see if i can find some you know Good, like domestic abuse hotlines or or, or the like, like to to kind of help out because, yeah, like that kind of thing is a, a very real, very horrifying thing that people go through here. So, Nas, uh, National Domestic Abuse or and Violence Hotline is one eight hundred seven nine nine seven two three three. So, yeah, if if us saying these things are are uh, sending off any triggers, please call that. Um, let's talk about how we're staying spooky, Nathaniel. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so the way I've been staying spooky is by making a whole bunch of really awesome t-shirts and stuff. So I'm sure uh, a lot of you guys uh, out there have, have seen a lot of the really cool designs that we've had added to our you know social media and, and all of that. And so I actually finally sat down and, and turned all of them into t-shirts slash whatever you want designs so they uh, can now be purchased you know for for t-shirts and stickers and laptop cases and all sorts of cool stuff so 
Uh, definitely check out those because they're awesome. And I'm going to be sporting a Green King shirt finally now that I've made all those. Yeah, the Ouija planchette one is amazing and I want it on everything that I own. They're all amazing. I am reading an amazing book that you are going to read when I'm finished called yeah. Come Come Closer. And it is by Sarah Gran, Gran, G-R-A-N. It's a very simplistic, to the point, no bells and whistles book about a woman who gets possessed. And it's only about 120 pages long. It's not very long at all. But it has gotten under my skin more than reading The Exorcist did. Um, I love The Exorcist book. It's very, very slow until the end. This... I don't know. The writing is so simple in a way that it really makes you feel that it's actually happening and it's very authentic. I was staying at a hotel this last weekend and I was reading from it and I had some creepy nightmares and I attribute it to reading the book. So if you haven't read it, go look it out. I think it was eight bucks on Amazon for the paperback. Great read. Awesome. Awesome. I hope everyone stays spooky. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.